0: This time on Poll Hub, Alabama shakes. At least it does for Democrats and the non-Steve Bannon wing of the Republican Party. After the special election there gave Alabama a Democratic Senator for the first time since 1992. So why did the oh so popular RCP average of polls have the Republican Roy Moore winning? Well, Amy Walter is here to help us break that down, and then we're going to talk to her about what all this winning by Democrats around the country over the past few months means for 2018. For Republicans, for Democrats, for Donald Trump, for all of us. A lot to discuss, so let's get started. And hi, everybody. I'm J.D. Depper, Director of Innovation here at the Marist Poll,
1: and I'm Lee Marangoff, Director of the Marist College Institute for Public Opinion,
2: and I'm Barbara Carvalho, Director of the Marist Poll, and we are here in the Hancock Center at Marist College in wonderful Poughkeepsie, New chili, York, chilly
1: Poughkeepsie, New York.
2: Crisp. We like to say crisp. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's cold. Okay, so Amy Walter is here. She's the national editor of the Cook Political Report. And it's great to have you here, Amy, because uh, we are sitting 24, not even 24 hours after the election in Alabama, which uh, pretty much everybody, not just in politics, but like cab drivers, you know, are asking people about. I saw a tweet from a political reporter about that. Um, What's just, let's start from scratch here, your take on what happened in Alabama. Uh,
3: Well, first of all, thanks for having me up here. I Love this view here, normally, from the Hancock Center over the river. It's beautiful. It's probably frozen or close to being frozen at this point. I know I am, (laughs) Um, (laughs) if the river is not, but it's beautiful. I always love coming up here, and I will put in a plug for the Maris Poll. I think you all do great work, and on top of it, you're good, nice people. And well, that should be a positive. Well, just wow. right there, it been good. Pollsters are people too. Pollsters are people that <laughs> yeah. are real humans. That
1: yes, Citizens <laughs> United yes. is now covering pollsters. I see. Well, and, and Amy, thank you so much for for schlepping up from Washington You're today as
0: well. So on, on the polls, though, it's interesting yeah. because we are a poll, and the RCP average, as we mentioned in the open, had Roy Moore winning by two point two points. There were polls all over the map. There were um, the the Fox News poll. Uh, the, mo- the most recent one had. Jones winning by a big margin. Monmouth had a tie. Other polls had, you know, uh, more winning, as we discussed. Um, what's your take on that, and how does that affect the coverage of uh, races like this by people like you covering national politics on a national scale?
3: So, this race was unusual in that you had a number of national organizations polling a state uh, race in an off year with unusual circumstances, right? And most To, say, of these, to, say, the to say the very least. And most of these are folks who've never been in this state. Right? And, Versus, it was spe- and
2: it was a special election, And a special too. election,
3: which we know, right, that turnout model and all those things are going to be really challenging. Normally, what would happen in a traditional midterm or off-year election, even a special election, is you talk to the campaign specifically, which was what we do, because their pollsters do understand what's going on, and have a very different priority as they're doing their polling than the national pollsters do. And And they have more
0: money to do it, too. Some of them do, generally. Mm -hmm.
3: But they also understand their job in doing the poll is not to figure out who's up and who's down and what the margin is and how how can we characterize this race. It's how do we get to victory? What do we need to get there? And so my colleague, Jennifer Duffy, who covers the Senate... Um, You know, she uh, spends a lot of time talking to people who are actually involved in the race. And it was pretty clear from what we were hearing that the race was basically on the knife's edge, right? That this Mm -hmm. was very, very close. A number of things needed to break Jones's way, namely black turnout needed to be significant. There needed to be some defection from Republicans. we talk a lot about these college-educated Republicans who have been, you know, uh, it's, since 2016 have been sort of disaffected um republicans turned off in some ways by Trump certainly Roy Moore they were turned off even more by uh his behavior um and uh they knew that you know the Moore himself created something of an anomaly um so so i think we knew going into it that this wasn't going to be a blowout that this was this was going to be a very very tight race, and that what the what the polls, the national polls, were showing was that uh, the reality for so many of these folks is how difficult it is to model in an off year in a strange place uh, with strange circumstances. And I don't think that's the same as, for example, going in and seeing a national poll Right, mm-hmm. you all, whether it's Marist or Quinnipiac or the NBC, um, what we're seeing is some real consistency in the national polling on the president's job approval mm-hmm. ratings, in the congressional ballot, in perceptions of the parties. So yeah. I don't think we're, you know, what we saw in Alabama is an indication that oh my gosh, polling's all over the place and these mm. people don't know what they're doing, as much as you had a lot of people in a state that well, quite frankly, they're not as well uh, attuned to. And so they were making assumptions about the state and about turnout that if you were involved in the campaign, you might not be doing.
2: Now, the, the politics of it, um, what can we take away from that? I mean, we saw Well, let's go back to November 2016. The Clinton campaign looked at looked at the electorate and said you know we think there's something different here that is happening in terms of the suburbs around urban areas um, among women who may be republican but more moderate um, and they targeted those groups not successfully however it does seem that in virginia for the governor's race which we saw recently and in alabama that that strategy may actually be coming to fruition. Yeah. Um, what's your take on that? Is is um, is something changing here, or is it just this particular? Um, no, I think context.
3: Yeah, I think what we've seen in the 2017 elections thus far, especially the House special elections, and now these. The governor's races in Virginia, New Jersey, and now, of course, the special election in Alabama is a real enthusiasm advantage Mm -hmm. for Democrats. You guys have been picking up in your polling for a while in terms of the intensity of – Dislike for the president, mm-hmm. shall we call it, um, mm-hmm. has been well.
2: Actually, yeah, his uh,
3: let's see, the, the strong drawn.
2: negative rating right. of the president, at least in the latest Maris poll, was at its highest right. this this and, time and in the exit polls and uh, the polls even the, in
3: the
1: strongly disapprove yeah. of President Trump's job performance was even in Alabama exceeded his strongly approves. Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, he's polarized, but he's also tipping in the negative direction.
3: That's right, and that intensity was. Breaking the other way in 2016, right? Mm-hmm. The intense, yes, both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were. Disliked, but the intensity of support for Trump was higher than the intensity of support for Hillary Clinton. I think that that's an important thing to remember. I think the other piece of this is, you know, you had a president who came in as a very polarizing figure, and a lot of voters, I would argue a lot of them, those suburban, reluctant Trump voters, or maybe they were voters that didn't show up in 2016, women who said, or suburbanites, college-educated suburbanites who said, I really don't like that Donald Trump, but I can't vote for Hillary Clinton. They left it blank. They, you know, they did some, they did, maybe they skipped it altogether, uh, the race altogether. Um, That now, what they were doing in 2016 was saying, well, let's kind of give this guy a shot. All right. I don't really like him. I don't like his behavior. I don't like his temperament, but let's see what he can do. And now we are nine months into this presidency, t- almost 10 months into this presidency, and it's pretty clear that the behavior that they saw in 2016 isn't changing. There is no presidential Trump, there is one speed of Trump. The tweeting and the divisiveness and the polarization has only gotten more intense. Instead of reaching out and saying, <laughs> I mean, again, this is what always surprised me as, as a student of politics, you guys are as well, that if you, ha- if you were any other candidate that won an election uh, by such a narrow margin, basically 70,000 votes over mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. Know, three key states, lost the popular vote. You're starting off as president with an, a job approval rating somewhere in the 40s. You would say, you know what I need to do? For the next year, I need to broaden my base. Yeah, not so much. I gotta broaden. That's what I'm gonna do. Instead, zero effort. He is just he's zero effort. He's actually doing the exact opposite, which is I'm only gonna talk to my base, and then that base has been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And Mm. I think those suburban voters who were somewhat reluctant in 2016, maybe reluctantly supportive, or uh, you know, they were somewhat hopeful that Trump would be a certain kind of president, have now really soured on he him. He never
1: does pivot. And no, and we there don't is use no. that word anymore. Be- before we go to break, Lee, I,
0: I just want to ask you mm-hmm. about Alabama again and these polls. Uh, you've been in this for, uh, for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. And we were talking about this as the polls were coming in last night as exit polls and all that. What happened there with these polls that were so all over the map? Well, I mean, to, as, as reporters, yeah. like Amy and I as reporters, I'm fascinated to find out what happened there and what you saw with your experience?
1: Well, I think a, a lot of it was what Amy talked about, this environment that the pollsters were dealing with, which was very, very challenging to say the least, and there wasn't a lot of track record to go on. So there was a little bit more of, of shooting in the dark. I, I, I think that there was a difference in the pre-election polls, uh, as it turns out, and not surprising to, to Barbara and me, between some of these IVR Polls And some of the polls that are more probability traditionally based scientific live interviewers calling people on landline and cell phones, which is how we do it and still think that is the gold standard, the way of doing it. And if you look at the polls that seem to be more on mark, the uh, now they do it slightly differently, but the Monmouth poll, the Washington Post poll, and uh, the Fox poll, which for reasons uh, we might want to get into, we thought was actually a very good poll. They all were, you know, had... Uh, Jones, uh, you know, close or in front. Um, and there was the IVR polls a lot that really had this more number. And that was really what I think was driving that uh, real clear average because they take everything and throw it into the, into the soup and you sort of end up with what you got.
3: And so the more, what you're saying is that the IVR polls, because they don't get cell phones, you're not yeah. you're probably not getting African-American or younger voters and in the, the same way that you would if you're only dialing and, landlines. And I
1: think they yeah. weighed it to what they think an electorate will look mm. like. But in this case, if they don't have a track record, right. they're, they're, they, the, the guesswork is a lot higher. And I think right. that's why they were off by even more. Sometimes the IVR stuff does mimic the uh, the uh, you know, well, scientific baseballs. Well,
2: but also, particularly in you know Republican primaries or with um, populations that tend to be more on landline. You make a perfect point, Amy, that... Yeah, they're missing a whole very large segment um, of the population that no longer have landline phones, so would not be accessible. And some of them do try to add in online, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, interviewing. But it's those again are non-probability panels, and so you know, scientifically, statistically, I don't even know what to think of them, quite frankly, um, because there is no science to
1: guide what those numbers mean. Yeah. And also, we know that where there's less diversity, where populations are more homogenous, it doesn't matter all that much the method, as long as you're getting a lot of them. But if you have a place in like Alabama, which we haven't talked about, clearly was not only diverse as a state, but within counties, right. which affected how right. the analysis of the vote was coming in, um, You know, certainly was very diverse and that made it even more challenging as if there weren't enough challenges.
0: So let's go to a break. And when we come back, um, we're gonna drill you a lot harder here on this 2018 question, right? What this all means, because I think that's the day after Alabama, that's what everybody's asking right now. So we'll be back in a second.
2: Hi, I'm Mary Griffith, executive producer of Poll Hub. If you're enjoying this week's episode, and we really hope you are, check out our previous episodes and let us know what you think. Email your questions and feedback to Poll Hub, all one word, at marist.edu. You can also catch us on social media. Just search at Marist Poll on Twitter and Marist Poll on Facebook and Instagram. And of course, stay up to date with our new episodes by subscribing. That is wherever you get your podcasts. There's lots more Poll hubs still to come. Stay with us.
1: Okay, rejoining the discussion, and we're here again with Amy Walter, uh, and Amy's visiting Marist College uh, as part of our Public Opinion Politics course, and she is uh, now, of course, doing this podcast, but then we'll be having dinner and conducting a seminar with an eager bunch of students who may look a little tired, Amy, because this is finals week, <laughs> and, um, and and you may be it. It's between you and Santa Claus. You're the block. You're, they get done with this class, and they can then... Move on to Wait, the holidays. Wait,
3: hold on one minute. I am between them, them and, and Santa, and Santa that's Claus. Right. I'm
1: sorry. You didn't really make I, it I, easy. That for is.
2: Yeah, Stop.
0: <laughs> well, that's right. Right. actually
2: actually I think they're really looking forward to this cuz this really is are. a
0: treat
3: and quite a I, present really, for all of us here. Yeah, well, as, that uh, is. Attractive. It's right. But still, I mean Maybe fighting Santa Claus, you know, that is well, that's, that's, that's a tough call.
1: <laughs> but anyway, so Amy is a, uh, a graduate of Colby College, and uh, you graduate summa cum laude, and I think that's certainly way up there on the scale. Very nice, very nice. Thank you. There's A few people nodding. They probably did well too at their colleges. I last not me. Thanks for that. And, and as such, I'm a big fan
3: of small liberal arts colleges. Yes. And I'm an board. evangelist. I was. I well, just now off the oh, board. I've, uh, but I was on the board for you're six board, years. Please. Yeah.
1: You were the news director there, you've been with Cook political report prior to that. And now I think have, you were a senior editor, I believe and now you've rejoined Cook Political Report as their their national editor. and you've been up to Marist before and you you know you know the, you know the, the routine. And, uh, and then we've had Amy uh, uh, graciously as participate in two of our panels. On two, two of our panel discussions, uh, including the most recent one, which was at the museum in Washington D.C. Uh, last spring, um, and so we are indeed, you know, just delighted to have you here um, again, and uh, and and we do appreciate because it's not around the corner, <laughs> and um, so so we want to talk now, I, I think, a little bit about uh, twenty eighteen, and and certainly that is the, the the chatter today, and I think one of the I guess I would begin by saying, you know, Barack Obama, you know, in the midterm elections did not go so well. And now the 2010, question— 2010, the first uh, yeah, time t- around. 2010, and, Well, actually,
2: 2014, too.
1: Yeah, so then the question becomes, are we seeing that Donald Trump uh-huh. can't deliver—it doesn't transfer um, from whatever he had— uh, to last year this time to uh, to what's coming up now in these special elections what we've seen and, and what we're looking at in 2018?
3: It's a great question. I have been in Washington and covering politics and involved in politics since 1991. So I have been through, what is that, six midterm elections? And four of them have been wave election. <laughs> so it was 94, 2006, 2010, 2014. Yeah. So this, in in every case, the party in the White House lost one or both houses in those four midterm elections. So uh-huh. so wave elections have now, for me, are more of the norm. They're the than, new normal. Th- yeah. Than being sort of these these crazy once-in-a-lifetime so, outliers. So is this now so the
1: this blue feels wave like, that we're so, seeing? So yeah.
3: just being through so many of these now, this feels very familiar. right? Mm-hmm. You have a president that comes in, although he, was, he came in in a very different way than we've seen before, right? He's unlike anything we've seen. But as I, I said earlier, you know, you come in with, you're very polarizing, you have very high disapproval ratings, you have a very narrow base, and then you spend the first nine months really only catering to that base, mm-hmm. polarizing the electorate even more. It's not surprising to me to see that the energy right now in the country is on the Democratic side. Mm-hmm. We're seeing that in the special elections, Democrats overperforming what they should normally where they normally should be in red districts. Mm-hmm. Um, in blue states like Virginia, they basically doubled their performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in a state like Alabama, where there, you know, we have to be careful because there were a whole lot of other things yes. going on. Obviously, had Roy Moore not been the, the Republican candidate, Democrats wouldn't have won there. But I think if you're a Republican and you look at this and you just say, well, you know, Roy Moore is a terrible candidate. Or, if we had a better candidate, we'd be fine. I would be very worried if I were Republicans and I saw that intensity of turnout among African-Americans and young voters and women and suburban voters. These are the kinds of people that didn't turn out in 2010. uh, They didn't turn out in 2014. And quite frankly, they didn't turn out in 2016 Mm -hmm. either. They turned out for Barack Obama and nobody else. You guys know this better than anybody. The greatest GOTV motivator is hate. It's not love, (laughs) okay? And so you can get a whole bunch of people turning out on the Democratic side, not because they think Democrats are these great; mm-hmm. they have a great message or mm-hmm, they have the best sure. candidates, but because of their deep dislike of, of does Trump. This, does
1: this emerge from the just the polarization, the inability of in the last ten years or so for government to function? Yeah, and I, so then you you know you put your money on somebody and it doesn't work, and, we, and then we go the other way.
3: I think so, and I think this is where tr- Trump had a real opportunity. Um, you know, when he when he got in, look, as I said, he got in with b- being very polarizing, mm-hmm. but for a lot of folks, as I said, and again, just, just being a student of political science, he said, well, this is a really fascinating experience, right? experiment. You have a president who has no political experience, but also no political affiliation. Mm-hmm. So he's not, quote-unquote, owned by anybody, and he talked about that a lot in the campaign. I'm not owned by the donor class. I'm not owned by the political mm-hmm. class. I can reshape Washington. I mean, every president comes in and says, I can reshape Washington, and they all fail. But it felt unique because, uh, really, he did come from such a different place and had such a different perspective. And I think a whole bunch of Democrats, you know, right around inaugural time, were still in sort of a Kubler-Ross state of <laughs> denial peace, not c- kind of trying to figure out where to go. And their greatest worry was that what Trump was going to do was come in and really pushed this message, sort of a populist message, to bring on not just red state Democrats, but some other Democrats. He would come in talking about infrastructure, fighting the war on opioids, and wrapping that all into tax reform. But instead, the very first thing his administration did was the travel ban. Mm -hmm. And then it went boom from there, right? So I I think that um, that is uh, unique to him. What's not unique is your point, Lee, that the the country has become, uh, one, so polarized and so frustrated with the dysfunction that we seem to just go back and forth between, this party didn't work, so I switched p- to the next party, to the next party. I also think, though, it is a symptom of the short term idness. I don't know that's really a word, but um, of the parties that what they do is they say, look, we may get one chance in power, and when we have it, you got to just go full out on pushing mm-hmm. your agenda. And it may lose us the next two elections, but we're going to at least be able to get our mm-hmm. agenda accomplished. Yeah. And so you just simply have the pendulum swinging all the way one way, one year to say, we over, you know, these are parties and candidates that overinterpret. They see that they have a mandate, which they don't. They overinterpret it, they overreach, they lose. The so next side comes in and says, you overreached and overinterpreted. Now we're going to do the same, and we kind of go yeah, back and no, forth. There's no
1: consensus building in the way it was.
3: Right. That's where we keep assuming is at some point
1: mm-hmm.
3: we've got to get somewhere in the middle, right? You can't just have this pendulum going back and forth, but it seems as if we are.
1: And yesterday I woke up in the – you know, the, I guess the conventional wisdom, if there is any more, was that the house was in play. Today, so I woke up and is the Senate, the Senate. now also
3: in play? <laughs> <Right>. so, <laughs> so
1: we have everything going. So now again.
3: everything. As I said, you know, you look to 1994, look to 2006, and quite frankly, 2010 should have been the same where the party in the White House lost both the House and the mm-hmm. Senate. The only reason Democrats didn't lose the Senate in 2010 is that Republicans put up a bunch of, mm-hmm. as my boss Charlie Cook calls them, exotic Candidates, <laughs> a, a trend like that, that has not ended. It if has Alabama not ended. Is any That's right. Indication. So, um, <laughs> Democrats need three seats to take control of the Senate. They're defending twenty-five, mm-hmm. including ten in states that Trump carried, five in states he carried by double digits. Mm-hmm. But now they've checked one off their list, so now they're two seats away from a majority. Arizona and Nevada are very strong opportunities for them. Um, Tennessee now is on the—I uh, uh, don't know—I would call it on the bubble, but it's certainly in the—you um, know—it's now part of the playing field
0: because mm-hmm. the the, because the quarter, Democratic candidate yeah, as well, right? Right, For, former governor, former, former governor
3: Bredesen, yeah. um, very well known. Now, granted, the last time he was on the ballot was. Very different time. <laughs> Democrats could still win in Tennessee back then. And, you know, we've seen past examples of Democrats bringing back oldies book goodies, whether it was Bob Carey in Nebraska mm-hmm. or you brought, um, why am I blanking on in Indiana? Um, uh, by, by uh, 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 in Indiana. So, you know, that doesn't always work out. But the fact is they're going to be, they're going to play for a state that a year ago we yeah. never would have said was competitive. Of course, they got to hold a lot of tough states, but yeah. I think now it, it is certainly a plausible debate to have. And
1: I guess if now you're into, if you're in re- recruitment mode right now, yeah. this is occurring, Alabama occurred at just the right time for Ab- the Democrats. Yeah, yeah.
2: But do the parties have a brand issue? And I mean, not just, not just the Republicans, but just in general, do parties really have a brand issue?
3: Well, I mean, what you're seeing now is really remarkable. I don't know what your numbers. I can't remember what your numbers were for Democratic Republican job approval, but it's bad. It's in the twenties, yeah, right? The Republicans 20s. are, I
2: think, con- congressional. Uh, yeah, congressional Republicans, Republicans are around twenty-five, mm-hmm. and uh, congressional Democrats
1: A are higher. thirty-two. 30s.
3: Yeah. Okay, so nothing uh, to
1: write home about. No, in nobody's case, happy right? about Nobody. that. Even lower than President
3: Trump. There we go. Yeah. yeah. And um, and uh, Americans. Uh, so they say, you know, they don't like the parties. Um, the parties themselves have become less influential. Mm -hmm. We saw that, obviously, in 2016, where the RNC and the Quote unquote establishment could do nothing to stop Donald Trump, and the quote unquote democratic establishment could do nothing to stop Bernie Sanders. He got all the money and, you know, that he needed mm-hmm. um, without having the donor class on the democratic side or the establishment on the democratic side. So the parties have less power than ever. The parties are more disliked than ever, and yet partisanship is stronger than ever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you have to kind of explain, I think the easiest way to explain that is people are attaching to party as a really about it's really more of identity than it is about the party and its policies or the party and its quote unquote brand it's, it's just like you would say it's identity instead of ideology yeah, yeah exactly it's just like say i'm going to wear my Marist sweatshirt and i'm going to wear my colby sweatshirt and i'm always going to cheer for my team yeah, and it's even sports, right? once you, you get to once you get to, the, once mm-hmm. you get to mm-hmm. the
2: general but is this going to play out as a
3: problem for Either party or both parties in the primary. Oh, I think it absolutely it does already. I mean, this is how you ended up with Roy Moore, right? Mm-hmm. Because I just just go back not too far in time in covering politics when a majority leader of your party, the head of the the Senate campaign committee of your party, said you need to get out of this race. They would do it. I remember when Tim Pawlenty was thinking about <laughs> running for the Senate and Karl Rove got up to Minnesota and was like, it's not your time. We got somebody else we want to run, and he didn't do it, right? This is where the parties had some influence and some power. So now what you're seeing is the power is really coming from either the grassroots, which is, again, we, thought, we say, well, that's good, right? We want diversity. We want the voice of the people. But it's also Steve Bannon. It's also mm-hmm. the billionaires who run super PACs. Yeah, the
0: money's not coming from the grassroots. No. I think the distinction there is that if it was – if the passion and the, the reason behind these candidates was their support among the grassroots, that would be one thing. You still have to have money and the money is coming from uh, often or at least sometimes hidden billionaires. Some of it is. With, with agendas.
3: Exactly. So some of it's that. Obviously Bernie Sanders wasn't that. Right. And Roy Moore, what we've also learned is you can take this sort of celebrity status – he did, well, he wasn't getting billionaire money. No, um, no, no, he, he can wasn't. He can raise money because of what his status is. And so that's what I think that primaries are going to be fascinating because mm. this idea of like the what the donor class is now has mm. totally changed. Mm. If you're a celebrity, your donor pool looks very different than if you're a sitting United States senator or if you are Oprah or if you're – right? Is um, Oprah
0: running? Do you think she's running?
3: I mean – who knows? Let's do <laughs> so, it. But we're, one of the me, things you
0: guys, one of the things you guys do, and Cook Political Report is best known for, is rating districts. Uh-huh. R, R plus, plus sixteen, R plus what? Are there? Uh, is this like a, a a period where you guys are having to really dig in? And reassess a lot of houses. Let's take house races, yeah. house districts. I mean, are a lot of them up for reassessment, or are we so gentrified and or not gentrified, uh, gerrymandered right. that they're really even now, even at this stage, there's really only a handful of districts that need reassessment. No,
3: it's a really good it's a really good question. And um, you know, look, the fact that the president's numbers are as low as they are, and the intensity is so strongly against him combined with a generic ballot right now that has Democrats at, what do you guys have at, 51%? Oh, that's a double-digit
2: difference. It's a double-digit difference. Double
3: digit difference mm-hmm. And, um, you know, what? when you look at those things together, you say, well, wow, that, yes, the playing field is bigger than what the conventional wisdom would suggest, right? And a conventional wisdom says, take any district that Trump lost. Okay, that's a top, that's a top target for Democrats. Mm -hmm. Um, What I'm doing now is also looking at any district that Trump, maybe that he won, but won with less than 50%. All right. Mm -hmm. So you add Trump districts that he lost that are held by Republicans Trump districts that he won by less than 50% held by Republicans. That's and about, that's
0: because there were third-party candidates like Jill Stein. And there were like
3: third-party yeah. candidates or people honestly skipped uh, the top of the ticket. The top, which, um, yeah.
0: which happened in this last year in greater numbers. In greater numbers because
3: yeah. you had a whole bunch of people. Who, and you who say – hated everybody. They hated everyone <laughs> and they said, I'm going to go and, you know, I, I might vote for my House candidate, but I'm not going to vote. So that gets you a, a playing field of about 50 or 51 seats. And then you got to start thinking about this – which is, as I said, I've been in Washington a long time and I've seen four wave elections. Two-thirds of the Republicans in Washington have never been on the bad end of a wave election, okay? They've only, they've, they're almost all of them were elected in 2010 or later. So they don't know what it's like. And it's like having kids, right? Where you're trying to tell them all the time, like, you don't know what it's gonna be like when this happens to you, <laughs> trust me, this is really bad. It's the hot stove moment, right? Don't touch the stove. It's really hot. Until they do, they're going to they're gonna try it. Yeah. And you had a lot of Republicans right now who are saying, well, I know, it looks really bad, looks really bad, but I have my own identity. I'm going to localize my race. I can raise a lot of money, right? Which is all fair, and some of them may survive it. But these are the kinds of years when people who um, – Either one are super cocky and think that they can't possibly be beat because everybody knows me and everybody loves me and I've been winning for the last whatever many years, um, or or people who don't understand that their district has changed underneath them. And there are a lot of those districts in Orange County, California, for example. That you know those that Orange County, of course, went for Hillary Clinton in this last election. Traditionally, it's been a really Republican part of the country. New Jersey is another really interesting place where you look at some of those districts in New Jersey that have been rock solid Republican for years, that went for Hillary Clinton. They're
0: white suburban. They're white. Sub- they're exactly. people who are no longer identified necessarily as Republicans, and at least not Trump in,
2: Republicans, and they're also in blue states, and which you know are also that's right being feel
3: that they're being targeted. That's right uh, by this by this Congress by this Congress the, and. By this this and then if you combine that, you know, the one, the one element we haven't seen – and this goes – so, so to your bigger question, though, is, is important, that there still is a structural advantage that Republicans have. And this is where – to the question about reassessment and how do we kind of gauge how likely that Democrats are at getting those 24 seats. You know, if you say, well, there's a wave building, and it's pretty clear that it is, how big does it need to be to get to 24? And a wave – in 1994 of this size could take out 50 seats, mm-hmm. but a wave this size with the gerrymandering and the self-sorting and the fact that so many seats now, you know they've been sorted out over the last mm-hmm. 10 years, now maybe it only takes out 20 seats, mm-hmm. right? So do you need a wave two times as strong um, as you would need in a normal year? That's and, a really
0: interesting way to look at it. Yeah, yeah so ten, yeah.
3: Um, and then there's the other analogy is yet. We think these are real structural advantages, except they haven't really been tested yet. And that, you know, it's like you're, you know, you build levees and you go there, they can withstand, you know, up to a hundred year storm. And, and then, then, you get, get the year storm, then you get the hundred year storm. And yeah. then, right, they don't hold. So yeah. that's really what we're looking for. But if you're going in, if Democrats go into 2018 with double digit, congressional ballot advantage, and the president in the low 30s. I mean, that just, it is hard to see that Democrats no. don't no. find 24 seats. Okay. Well, you
2: know, just one, one other thing. Um, you guys use a lot of polling to make your assessments. Is there anything that you'll be doing differently this time Good around? question.
3: The hard part for us is, especially in House races, there's very little public polling. So you're using a lot of um, the campaign polling uh, and mm-hmm. the c- campaign committee polling or super PAC polling. So some of that is, you know, you have to be careful about, um, about that, uh, you know, understanding where it's coming from. Uh, and you're not going to get as much of it. When you have 500 polls in Pennsylvania, it's easy to aggregate and throw out ones that you don't like. In House polling, you're not getting as many. And even in Senate races, you'll get a lot more, but the quality of it is not going to be as high as it will be for the presidential or the national polls. I think the thing that what I'm really doing this year is – you guys reminded me of this. As we look at the polls, especially going into the election – instead of looking at what the margin is look at where the incumbent candidate is and whether they've moved at all if they've started at 45% in 2017 and they're still at 45% in 2018 that's a problem <laughs> it's likely they're going to hit 45% yeah. on election day and that's right a that's their ceiling and instead of looking at oh well they're up you know 45 to to they've been up by 15 points this entire time well they've been under They've been under 50 for a long time. And the unknown
1: challenger may gobble up the undecided. And so my
3: assumption right now, again, especially if this environment looks like this a year from now, is Mm. undecideds are going to break against the incumbent party. And so if you have 10% undecided, I'm not going to give all that 10% to the incumbent. I'm going to give most of it to the challenger.
1: Interesting. Lots of food for thought. And we have a classroom of students now uh, who are going to uh, partake of that Uh, Different kind of food. Different kind of food. Well, both kinds
0: of
2: food. Both kinds of food. Real food and brain food. Very happy
1: to have have you here on podcast. And we look forward to your comments in class in a few moments.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Well, thank you very much. That does it for Poll Hub, a production of Marist College and the Marist Poll. And it is produced by our wonderful executive producer, Mary Griffith.
0: If you like it, don't forget to subscribe. And we'll see you next time.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Amy.